0: Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's ASA Expert webinar, Invisalign and Veneers, Combining Two Great Technologies for One Great Smile, with Dr. Trent Smallwood. Dr. Smallwood has been tra- uh, treating Invisalign patients at his Center for Contemporary Dental Concepts in Temple, Arizona, since 2003. A graduate of Indiana University with specialized training in dental cosmetics from PAC Live and completed his fellowship with Faith. Dr. Smallwood teaches on numerous topics, educating other dentists on contemporary concepts of today's dentistry. In addition to lecturing lecturing at Invisalign courses, he consults and teaches other major dental manufacturers, dental laboratories, and at dental conferences nationwide. Dr. Smallwood is on the faculty of the Hornbeck Group and is co-director of its Advanced Posterior Program. So without further ado, I'll turn the prog- program over to Dr. Trent Smallwood. Dr. Smallwood, you now have the floor.
1: Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. I uh, have the distinct pr- pleasure of being uh, with all of you on a Friday morning. I would imagine some of you maybe even normally working today, so if you're not and you're taking some time off or between patients or even just if the fact that you're off on, uh, on a day off uh, listening to me, I really do appreciate it. I hope to bring in a, kind of a, a different way of looking at dentistry to some degree, something that's kind of... Gotten me passionate over the last few years. I, uh, just a brief story as to how I got into dentistry, uh, with regard to Invisalign. As I, I got in kind of kicking and screaming. I had a very, um, aggressive, uh, territory manager for years that would come to my office and say, You've got to look at this Invisalign. And I said, Why? When I can just prep the teeth straight. That's kind of was my philosophy. If, if the teeth, uh, teeth were malpositioned, I could just prep them aggressively, often induce root canals, in fact. To the point where I could straighten the teeth and place restorations over the top, and after sending an associate uh, to get a to uh, to get certified, at the time it was a two-day program, uh, with a line, uh, really honestly, just to get my territory manager off my back, um, he had 30 to 40 cases within about four months in my practice, and so we we're excited about that, but I had nothing to do with it. But then, as things happen, I let the uh, Associate Go, which often occurs, and I was all of a sudden thrust with um, 40 cases that I had to deal with and six um, checks the following week. So uh, Jerry Ziles, my very uh, tenacious territory manager, got me up to, I believe it was um, uh, Seattle, and, uh, and I got certified, and on the way home, I was thinking, you know, I don't have to prep these teeth so aggressively anymore. So it was really exciting for me because I had this epiphany paradigm shift in my own practice where I could move the teeth, or at least the idea was to move the teeth, into a more ideal position, and then I could restore them much more conservatively. So that's what I'm gonna talk about today. I am um, really excited about this because this is a topic that is always exciting for me, and at this point now, I, in my practice, I would say about 40% of my, my um, uh, restorative anterior cases are done using Invisalign as a first phase with veneers to follow, and that's what I wanna kind of show today. I think probably to start more than anything is the idea of establishing what a niche practice is or what you enjoy in your practice. In my, in my case, for me, a large part of it was the fact that I enjoyed doing dentistry that was more conservative. I was taught that every silver-filled tooth was just a baby crown, and I realized that we could do far more conservative dentistry with the use of inlays and onlays, and conservative was always my big approach if I could, but I was taught to basically, I hate to say this word, but put your teeth into, like I said earlier, to being straight taking 80% of the tooth away to be able to restore it. And like crowns are uh, so aggressive, I found ways to be able to find my practice within. Um, and, and then, of course, for me, Invisalign in 2003. I can't believe it's already been 2003. Seven year, or eight years almost. Uh, it seems like just yesterday. But for me, this is also a liner-only type of practice that I have that doesn't compete with anything else in your practice. So it's really been a, an incredible journey for me to where now I've now introduced Invisalign as well as Invisalign with combination restorative. When I look at the fact that restorative differences, this everything that you see today are all my cases, good and bad. This is one of the first cases that I did, I think, probably within the first 15 or 20 veneer cases, and I had learned beyond what um, uh, the anterior teeth were. We were taught in dental school that the anterior teeth were 6 through 11, and in this day and age, when you smile, the smile zone is well beyond those six teeth. And so I learned the idea that we have to go further back to achieve a more beautiful smile. I just had that this time with the picture that you see now. I hadn't quite figured out the fact that teeth could be monochromatic, over-contoured, and for lack of a better term, look like chiclets. And I felt that I could probably improve upon that. So for me, in my practice, was using the same material. The last picture was empress. And then looking at this picture that you're, that's coming up now, this is the same material, just used in a, in a little, little bit more conservative manner, and this was actually the first combination Invisalign veneer case that I ever did uh, on Danielle, and I want to kind of go through her case as well as another one, as well as bring other points that are gonna help you with your own Invisalign cases, with restorative, and just Invisalign only, that make you look at the aesthetics a little bit more, which then leads into the function. That's kind of the excitement of all of this. It has, whether you're, you're motivated by cosmetics, you'll have a functional byproduct, and if you're if you're motivated by function, which I am, then you'll have a cosmetic byproduct. I'm going to kind of hit both. But I used to be very cosmetic-based, and now I'm more functionally based with a cosmetic twist that will always come within it. So that's kind of the the idea and summary of what I'm going to talk about today, and it's uh, been just a a passionate position for where I've gone. Now, power pearls, these are things within Invisalign that make your life a little bit easier. Of course, our primary topic today is the use of uh, restorative I have many pearls that some of you have even maybe even heard uh, me speak before whether it was at the summit in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago which is phenomenal or uh, whether it's been at uh, some uh, continued or queer uh, essentials one uh, training programs or even just some some uh, uh, study groups that I've done the idea is to look at restorative now granted the economy has changed things to a degree I mean at one point in my practice in Tempe I'm in Tempe Arizona and um one point, I was doing about 8 to 10, 10 veneer smiles per month and 2 to 3 full mouth rehabs. Now, that's dropped by about 30% in my practice, but I'm still doing a lot of restorative. And looking at what you see, for example, here, we can see that the idea of, of conservative preparation, all being my preparation in the upper left, you can see what I thought was Uh, I I would at least call them veneers in the beginning, but because I would spend so much time preparing the teeth before you knew it, most of the enamel was gone. And then more towards the the center left, I got a little bit more conservative. And then, uh, of course, the upper middle was even more conservative. And then still 60% of my cases are on the lower right side where it is more conservative, but still aggressively prepped. So I realized that I could do things just a little bit better if I were to move the teeth into a better position. So the combination for me of the Invisalign restorative was really a powerhouse of my practice. And as I said earlier, 40% of my practice now with regard to restorative comes from basically an Invisalign pre or initial phase followed by restorative. Now that said, how do I do this? The idea of course, as I have always been big on teaching is to make a process simple, reproducible, and predictable. I want to be able to do that every time. So, of course, Invisalign was the first phase, and how do we look at that? So we're going to look at a couple of cases, and then I'm going to break it down even further. But initially, with Danielle, this uh, was actually a Miss Arizona winner in 2004, early 2004, about two or three months, four months after I had been certified at Queer Essentials. She had come, come to me the winter as Miss Arizona. She's going to go to the Nationals in several uh, months, and she wanted a better smile. Now, you look at her smile, and we're going to break this down a little bit further, but just initially, beautiful girl, but she has some issues uh, with regard to uh, buccal corridor issues, uh, malpositioning, uh, reflexive and deflective zone issues. And so the idea was to, to – but she also wanted conservative. She was very worried about having her teeth uh, aggressively prepped. She had never had a cavity in her life. And so she wanted something that was going to be conservative yet beautiful, of course. And patients put demands on us all the time like this. So we've got to be able to figure out what we need to do to be able to achieve these, uh, this end. So in her particular case, we only had put her in Invisalign for about four months, three and a half, almost four months. And this is the post Invisalign. Now it's not what's great about the combination of Invisalign with restorative is you don't have to be perfect. You just need to be close. That's the beauty of this, is the restorations, if preset as to what, and the number of restorations we're gonna use, is predetermined, and I'll get into this a little bit further, and prepaid for, because <laughs> that's I think that's important too, then you have a, a clear set on where you wanna go, because you don't want somebody to be able to start Invisalign, pay you part of the uh, amount, and then not pay you the second half, and then they decide that they don't wanna go forward, because it does leave you into, maybe somewhat of a precarious position, because you only got them close, not finished, And that's the idea here. So when you look at the right picture, we're certainly not done, uh, but the idea was to at least get her into a closer position, and I'll kind of break that down uh, a little bit further here. So Danielle's issue was, of course, she didn't quite articulate quite like this, but she said that uh, primarily her issue was the fact that her teeth had a strange horizon or they were up and down, more or less, and, and really what she was trying to say is asymmetrical gingival heights and incisal positions the gingival zeniths were also an issue. Low value of 7 and 10, primarily because they were tipped lingually, slightly retroclined. so as a result, they had almost an endodontically treated look, so they appeared darker. You can see that in this film to some degree, but um, it is something that she had an issue with. Plus, her uh, canines were almost as wide as they are long, and she had a fair amount of wear on them, so she did have a COCR discrepancy, which I don't feel like Invisalign you can fix accrual issues, but you can certainly improve them, and it's contraindicated to treat TMD issues with Invisalign. But I will tell you, after doing hundreds of cases, I now do that, and it can be done predictably as well to help you at least move into a better position. So these were her concerns. So what I did is, using Photoshop, I actually had superimposed here, you'll see in a moment, her after Invisalign over her pre-op. And it gives you at least a little bit of an idea of where we were trying to go. And the transition it was, was I was more or less post-Invisalign. We got the gingival heights into a better position. The incisal line is still not ideal, but we we're going to re, uh, replace that or fix that with uh, restorative. So going kind of backwards here, you can see the extrusion of tooth number 7. We also intruded 4 and 5. In retrospect, I think I would have intruded 4 and 5 just slightly more. But here I have more or less the post-op superimposed over the pre-op so you get an idea of what we did, so we, for example, uh, intruded number nine to get a better gingival zenith. These are things that in the restorative phase I can get closer also using a laser but using Invisalign because if you intrude a tooth, for example, one millimeter, the gingival or a periodontal apparatus will follow it and that's a nice way to be able to more or less harmonize the gingival heights and zenith uh, using Invisalign you know you're going to use the restorative to get the rest of the dimensions of the teeth more ideal. So in her case, we are able to hit most of the issues. Obviously, this was not meant to stop here, but I was able to address a lot of her issues right there. We weren't able to hit the value of 710. That was still, obviously, something that's going to be worked out more into the uh, restorative, but it gave her a great idea and a great position on where we were going. She was thrilled already where, uh, as, as far as the progress at this point. So that's only half the treatment. So from a lateral view, you can get somewhat of an idea here, more of an extrusion of tooth number 7, intrusion of 4 and 5, a better rotation and positioning of the canine, and then a better position of 8 and 9. That is just basically what we're looking at doing. And The great thing about Invisalign is I don't necessarily have to depict or tell them all these things. I just ask them to create an ideal. And some of you that have listened to me before know that I'm very big on expansion uh, I use IPR less than 2% of the time because I just don't feel like it's needed. And I use Proclining when when necessary but I can't use that excessively because it can create an axial inclination issue which uh, most of you will know that if we draw a line through the long axis of the tooth we want it to converge to the belly button and that doesn't always occur and so if we're able to bring that into the belly button it gives you more of an ideal uh, both aesthetic look and functional look. So in this particular case superimposing one over the other you can get an idea visually of the movements were minimal but they were effective and again this is why I only do this on 40% of my cases, I can't do this on all of them because A, because of uh, financial reasons, patient, all patients can't do it or just because of the fact that the phase of the treatment will be far too long. So. There are various elements that will affect these type of cases but at 40% I think it's substantial. Now here we have Danielle to summarize kind of this particular case, this being my first case. I have two types of more or less um, veneer combinations that I do. One is this type of set where it's minimally invasive. You'll see the appropriation design is far more conservative than I even showed on those pictures earlier. And then the second phase is an absolute prepless case. But here's Danielle preoperatively. And then as we move into the preparation element, you can see here, basically, it's a minimal preparation. And all I did was score right towards the gingiva, as you can see. And then interproximally I just used a 392 burr by Axis or Brassler. It's a mosquito burr that just barely breaks the contact at less than .1. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say less than .1, .1 to .2, depending on which part of the burr that you use. And then just basically an end result that is very conservative. I do not need to even numb the patient when I place. I always numb the patient before at preparation stage because I like to usually contour the gums to some degree. But final restorations are done in, as you can see here, we did 10 very natural, uh, very aesthetic, all in enamel, which is nice. The only area that would sometimes be prepared would be the incisal, which I'll kind of explain that uh, a little further as we go. Uh, Just based on dimensions. Now the second type of case is a non-invasive, completely prepless case. And this was Elaine. Um, And Elaine had kind of an interesting story. She had lost her husband uh, several years prior and she had not uh, been dating, uh, so to speak. But one thing that was interesting about Elaine is that she had a sister in Texas that had just recently had her teeth veneered. And she went out there to basically spend time with her sister while the procedure was being done and making it sound like a a large medical procedure, but she wanted to be there for her for support. And while her sister was going through the provisional stage, the teeth kept falling out, the provisionals. And then once the final teeth were placed, those kept falling out. So, of course, this has been something that plagues dentistry all the time, and it's usually based on adhesive issues and or occlusion. But in Elaine's case, when the teeth would come out of... uh, in her sister's case she was appalled by the preparation or lack of tooth structure that was supporting underneath and she just said it just looked terrible looked like these teeth were just never going to be the same plus her teeth the the sister's teeth were overly white valued and over contoured so she came to me because she had found me on the internet actually knowing that I do more conservative type of dentistry and she said I would like to have more of a presence in my teeth but I don't want you to have to aggressively prepare these teeth and I'm really worried about them falling out so I had to reassure her that we could get past this. And so she was open to the idea of using Invisalign first. So in in Elaine's particular case, what we did is pre-Invisalign, as you're uh, seeing here, is where she started, and then post-Invisalign, which is only about three months later, and using the um, restorative uh, uh, treatment of Express, Invisalign Express, if any of you have ever used that. It's a wonderful product, but it's a very dangerous product in the sense that you get no frills really with it. You have one shot to hit this and it's gotta be less than 10 aligners. If you don't, you may very well have to start again or pay for it again. So Invisalign full is usually the, the, the preference for me with restorative, but in this particular case, uh, she was already in a fairly good position. So what it leaves is now with these restorative combinations as I ask, and I'll reiterate this again later in a, in a few moments, that I ask for a, uh, a three degree retroclined position. And, and this is in, in addition to expansion and to achieve uh, normal ideals. In fact, when I do every case in the design a liner only or in liner with a restorative, I always ask for uh, expansion primarily, procline as needed, and no IPRs. I always try to get them to do it with no IPRs. Now, in this particular case, I'm wanting IPRs, not that I actually place them, but rather have a line move them to where I want a 0.1 or more interproximal. Um, space so that I can place the restorations on. Point one is my minimum, and I have several reasons for doing that, which I'll get into also here in a few moments. So here is Elaine at a lateral position. Excuse me. And then from the straight position, you can see her teeth are already slightly retroclined anyway, which is a great case, great selection for this type of scenario. But after three months, uh, or about 12 weeks, this is where she ended up. So what you'll see at the bottom there is that we're at a, a three-degree retroclined, what I call reposition, with a 0.1-millimeter diastema. Sometimes those 0.1s are closer to one millimeter, or they could be closer to uh, 0.5. It really depends. I don't actually tell them. I just say a minimum of, and then there, and then a line and the technology will more or less move the teeth to that uh, more ideal position. The reason I use three-degree retroclined, I start at seven, but as many of you can imagine that are more versed in occlusion, I was starting to have some issues with the envelope of function. I have found now in 142 cases that I've done that at three degrees, I'm allowed about 0.5 millimeters of facial, you can imagine a three degree retrocline position, I'm allowed about 0.5 millimeters of facial porcelain as a result of this. And most of you probably use Empress or A-Press ceramics, uh, even a feldspathic is fine, but they require usually about a 0.6, manufacturer suggests. well I've gotten it down to 0.2 as long as the... Um, the, the tooth is not uh, overly uh, low valued, uh, as you might get perhaps show through. So, 0.5 in enamel, you're going to have a very strong bond, and it's a very safe uh, zone as far as the three degrees. And to date, knock on wood, I've not had issues with envelope function. So, this seems to be the happy place. And you can again expand it, and then all of this work is done in a, in a, basically consecutively as we go. And again, <clears throat> excuse me, this will be uh, a little bit better explained here in a moment. Now, with those type of positions, based on what you just saw with Elaine, I still do a wax up. Wax up is critical because it is your prototype. You can't do a wax up and then, of course, provisionals will come from this. Provisionals and wax up are still number one um, as far as establishing a prototype. Also, doctors, many of you that are doing restorative are probably doing a wax up and then you are often probably placing, uh, taking the template from the wax up using a Siltec or a clear uh, impression material. I use actually a clear impression material by Discus, that's a clear bite registration material so I can see my template, Uh, I can see through it and see the teeth underneath it. And then I actually place an O3O incisal flowable by car material in the incisal, and i got great aesthetics towards the incisal, which you'll see in a few moments. But the reason the diagnostic wax-up is critical is it sets you up for a uh, beautiful aesthetic and functional end result based on the provisionals. But I will tell you that some of you probably have had um, wax-ups. you play placed the provisionals, placed the provisionals, made some modifications to the provisionals, and then... You like them, the patient like them, and then a few weeks later you go to put the restorations in and you're not happy they're too long, too short, otherwise too too thin, uh, contoured, strange, whatever it might be, and it's because the laboratory usually uses the wax-up. The wax-up is obsolete as soon as the provisionals are made. So just as a kind of a sidebar, doctors, I would suggest always taking the wax-up out of the case as soon as you send it back at the prep stage. Do not include that wax-up anymore. What I like about that is I'm able to use then the wax-up in the future as reference for other patients. For example, if they have spaces between their teeth or they're uh, rotated incorrectly or malocclusion, I can take a wax-up of about 150 of them on this beautiful cabinet in my office. And I just take a pre- before, basically, a pre-op and a uh, wax up and I show the patient and they get a chance to see without having to go through the whole rigmarole of a, of a full diagnostic. It just gives them a very quick visual. So I have the same view and feeling with showing patients clinchecks. I never show patients checks because it confuses them. They don't understand what they're seeing and they can be very confused by that. I also don't use it to sell the case. I would prefer to use the patient case portfolio, which you can download off of AlignTechInstitute.com um, and that is 16 smiles that give you a visual idea with a check and a modified clincheck of what you can do for them. So the wax-ups are critical from a restorative standpoint but take them out as soon as you prep the teeth, critical. Because if not, there'll be a dimensional change. But that also means in your provisionals that you've got to take an impression and a photo of those provisionals so that you can show the, uh, the ceramics what you're looking for. And what, ideally, hopefully, you've gotten pretty close to what you're happy with and what the patient's happy with. Now, the, the reason I break contacts or, or I have a line open my contacts, for years, at least I was taught, that uh, breaking contacts was not something that we always did. We would try to be more conservative and create less in the way of uh, contacts. I no longer feel that way because I feel contacts at least moved open or created with a burr are critical because one is you'll get a good impression. If you have not broken the contacts, impression could potentially get at the uh, gingival embrasure and then as you pull it, it tears. You can't tell it tears, but it does. Also, the provisionals will lock on. If, for those of you, I did a lot of cases that were... Basically, without uh, breaking contacts, and I would have the provisionals um, fall off all the time because just the interproximal contact was not enough to hold, and they'd often break. The next is the ceramist will give it'll give them room to be able to create different or changes in the dimensions if you need that. And most teeth I feel do need that usually. Not that all teeth need to be bigger, but they just need to often be a little bit better in the way of proportions. We rarely see an ideal a gold proportion with patients, so they can be manipulated if you have a little bit of space. And the last reason for me, at least, is it gives the room to create perfect dyes. Um, if you remember from dental school, I at least had to make some of my, I've uh, been practicing 15 years. Man, I can't believe it's been that long. 15 years. And I had to make some of my own crowns, and I had to, of course, create my own dyes. Well, I will tell you that that was not the easiest thing in the world either, because of the fact that sometimes if I didn't break contacts, I would have to actually saw through my margin. And that occurs sometimes as well with ceramics if you don't break contacts. And as a result, they can denature your margins, which will lead to potential failure down the road. Not initially. It's when you see it three years down the road. And some of you doctors probably know what I'm talking about. To give an idea of the retrocline position from a lateral side, basically we have just angled it in or retroclined them about three degrees. And all you have to do is tell the laboratory, or align that, and I'll show you how I do that in a moment. But this is more or less the concept visually on what we're trying to do. In addition to that, what it does, it gives you a little bit of an uh, easier idea, a uh, better idea of identifying with what I've got here, that retrocline position is just tilting in those teeth just slightly to allow for the porcelain to finish on the outside of, for example, the 8 or 10 teeth that you're going to be working on. And if you're going to be doing more than that, more teeth, then obviously as we move more posterior, oftentimes you're going to have to actually remove some of the the, uh, enamel. But using the anterior uh, 10 teeth, it can be done almost without preparation at all. And that's the case I'm showing here with Elaine. So it gives you an idea here of what that slight tilting will occur in that uh, 3-degree retrocline. 3 degrees seems to be the magic number, at least for me. So then once we've got uh, the Invisalign completed, and that can range from anywhere from, you know, a couple months to two years, I've got uh, one fellow that's in for three years, in fact, and we're doing a full mouth rehabilitation on him. What's ironic about that particular case is his name is Tim, and and we have got uh, him in for three years. He's at about a little over two years right now. He paid for the entire treatment up front, which came out to about $50,000 up front, and it's incredible when you're holding somebody's money, they always show up. Dentists are terrible about the 50 years, same as cash. It's like, just kind of pay me when you can kind of thing, and I got away from that philosophy a long time ago, and I basically base my fees uh, on three elements. Complexity of the case. This is the same with Invisalign or aligners only, or Invisalign combination, or restorative. And anything over $2,500 in my practice gets a case fee. I don't know if any of you are doing case fees, but this is, I think, the most brilliant thing out there that was missed in dental school, because we were taught a lot of bad habits in dental school. And one of them is how we collect, basically, from our patients. And what I'll do is I base it on the complexity of the case, the number of teeth, and honestly, the PETA factor, what kind of pain in the rear end they are. If it's a complex situation where the patient is just difficult, then I try to work that into the fee. And as a result, I come up with a fee that is very vague and ambiguous. So it's never 19,000, for example, with 10 veneers and Invisalign. It's 19,328. When you say 19,000 or 20,000, patients tend to be able to identify with that quickly, and sometimes they'll negotiate with you, and it always seems to be in increments of 1000 at least in my office. And I'm in Tempe, Arizona, which the household mean income is only uh, 61000 so it's not like I have a very affluent crowd. I have a lot of people that do come from all over the place uh, for me to work on them, but uh, it is the area that I'm actually in is not. So if, if, if I can do it, anybody can do it. But with that said, it's interesting, uh, using an arbitrary or somewhat ambiguous figure they don't identify, it almost tricks them a little bit into where they can't quite, if you say 19,000 versus 19,418, it makes them hesitate because they've got to think about that number. And the negotiation stops, I just don't see it. And uh, it's worked out pretty well. And you know, we all have patients that we don't like, and that's okay, about six or seven years ago I just adopted the philosophy that you just charge them until you like them. And that works out pretty well. So anyway, that said, here's Elaine, she is uh, preoperative here, uh, Definitely has a a midline uh, cant. She also has an overall arch cant. She has got uh, abnormally shaped teeth, not excessively, but she wanted to improve. In her case, she's the only case I think I've ever done where she wanted uh, basically in the A's uh, as far as shading. So I think we did an A2 on her, but she wanted more dimension of her teeth. So she wanted more purpose and to be able to show more. And so for her, it was all about presence because she felt like in conversations she was never really seen or noticed because of her teeth, which I thought was very interesting, and it can also be very dangerous. That's a um, definitely a red flag on occasion from a psychological standpoint. I had a patient that was very upset with me one time because she did her teeth, uh, veneered them, but she had not found a husband, and I thought that was funny. I didn't know whether I'm a matchmaker or a dentist. It was uh, kind of interesting. We all get those kind. In her particular case, Zoe Lane, she uh, went from what she felt was very mousy and, and kind of unassuming and, and kind of falling into the background to a much more profound and, and and purposeful person. And for her, it was it was profound. So in 12 weeks, we were able to, using Invisalign Express or Invisalign Full, doesn't matter, we were able to give her exactly what she was looking for. And then 10 veneers, Prepless. Now, in her particular case, I just don't have a prep situation where we will place provisionals um, based on the pre-op that I had, or the post-Invisalign uh, that I had shown, and then several weeks later, we will place them without anesthesia and what happens basically is I place the restoration and we will, uh, because the ceramist has to finish the porcelain, we'll have more or less what I call a, a pseudo-CEJ and that pseudo-CEJ will then uh, be trimmed back after cementation with a 32 fluid uh, carbide burr, whatever you like is, is fine usually it comes to a point, so I can kind of of slightly get uh, interproximal, and I just smooth it right to the tooth, and I do all my preps when I can, supra-G versus sub-G, because I like to try to not introduce anything into the gingival apparatus if possible. So that said, she was thrilled. Um, This has now been about five years since we've done this, and she does not have had any of the teeth pop out. She keeps threatening me I'm going to do her sister's teeth over because they all have fallen out, I guess, Uh, but uh, I still have not seen that happen. Anyway, um, as a finish with Invisalign prescription, as some of you may have heard from me, I am very simple in the way I use my prescriptions. Many doctors with Invisalign get very confused because they ask, why I want number seven extruded one millimeter and number nine intruded two millimeters and this, that, and the other. I rarely use dimensions at all. I just say, please set to ideal. As I said earlier, I always ask for expansion primarily proclining as needed and no IPR. I can always change that with the IPR and introduce some, but with me, I don't like to do a lot of IPRs because I just I think they're overused and overdone and I just have found that I just don't need to do them. And so here I'll move the teeth to ideal using that, those same parameters I just mentioned to uh, expand primarily. And I, I'm sorry, I keep reiterating this, but it's such an important point. And then uh, proclining as needed and IPR, I do that on 100% of my cases. Uh, just to make sure that they try to not to introduce those IPRs. Then I ask also, at the same time, a three-degree retrocline position uh, uh, and a one, a .1 millimeter diastoma on the teeth I'm going to restore. And what they'll do is they'll typically expand it and create that space of .1 millimeters or more, depending. And then also create a small space in the uh, anterior areas to allow for the porcelain to more or less extend to the lingual on the lingual bevel situation. Um, as a result, we'll get a nice, uh, great phase two with minimal or prepless uh, type of preparation as the two examples, the last two examples I showed. Just to explain uh, preparation, because it's a very big thing to me with all the teaching I do of a veneers, I've taught thousands of doctors how to do veneers correctly and efficiently, and this is one thing that doctors tend to overdo it, and I only bring this up because I did. I used to over-prep tremendously. This is a lingual bevel, as you can see in the incisal. Ideally with ceramics, feldspathic, and or uh, pressed we like to have about 1.5 millimeters of incisal porcelain to allow for cutbacks and incisal characteristics. That's ideal. So if you have a 9 millimeter um, central incisor naturally, and you want to uh, go to 10.5, well, you don't have to do anything on the incisal. But if you have a 10 millimeter incisal, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry 10, 10 millimeter uh, central incisor and you wanna to go to 10.5, for example, you need to remove about one millimeter. So that's where the bevel would come into play here. What we typically see uh, is, in this particular side, is that look at that bevel in the traditional sense. This is not one of the cases I've talked about. This is the other 60% of the traditional preparations. But you can see the lingual bevel, based on the emergence profile, gives you about a 25 to 40 degree Angle for the ceramics to build their porcelain, which is more than enough for them. A lot of dentists don't do this because they think of it as a feather edge, and it's not. But at the same time, we don't want to do what we call a lingual chamfer, which is the way I was taught, and many of you probably were as well. The lingual chamfer tends to really exponentially reduce the amount of tooth that you start to see. And and based on the picture that's probably coming up up right now, is we we do that lingual chamfer, and as a result, the uh, unsupported at this point, Denton, starts to become very thin, and so you have to end up dropping the chamfer even more lingually, and so as, as far as, for example, in the second example, I kind of, um, in a fun way for me, I call it the uber chamfer, because this is what ends up turning into this, you know, 29 over 30th crown, or a five-sixth crown, or a eleven 12th crown. It's like, we, we try to call this a veneer, but it really isn't, it is really a crown. And it's primarily because the thinness of the tooth from facial to lingual begins to exponentially get so thin that it gets unsupported and we have to just keep dropping that lingual um, margin. And for those of you, just another tidbit, with regard to occlusion, things that will help you tremendously is you want to uh, not have a centric stop on the junction between porcelain and tooth, either all on porcelain or all-on tooth, it can transition from one another but not right on the junction. That is usually a very typical failure point. So we want to avoid that uber-chanfer because that's, uh, I know from my own personal experience, is what I ended up many times uh, for many years. So just remember the uh, incisal bevel is always the best, most conservative, and really uh, functionally the best for longevity and bond strength. You've got plenty of surface area here. You do not need to cover all of these teeth with crowns, as many of us were taught. Now, as I finish the program, um, the last part, really the last third, is I'd like to just talk about these power pearls, which are the nuances of the smile. And this applies to not only the restorative, but also the Invisalign. And and I'm proud to say that Invisalign um, has really... Stepped up in the area of function and aesthetics. They want the best for their clients, meaning us as doctors, but also the end user, which of course is the patient. And now, with approaching, I believe, 1.8 million cases completed, which is a phenomenal number, it is really an important element to be able to see what in your practice will set up the next case. I know for me, I do a fair amount of marketing, but most of my marketing cases that I do, both restorative, combination, and just Invisalign only, is referrals from patients I've already worked on. And so the two main elements, uh, some of you may have heard me talk about this, but when choosing cases for Invisalign, always look at like arches. I, I digress a little bit, but like arches in the sense that if you have space over space, crowding over crowding, it usually is a great case to do. As soon as you get into space over crowding, I do these cases every day, but they can start to complex the system. Uh, and slightly complicate the system and in my my opinion immediately moves that up to a more intermediate to advanced type of case when you have a mixed arch set. So crowding over space or space over crowding. But when you have crowding over crowding or space over space it's a like arch type of scenario. And Invisalign has really adopted um, that philosophy that I've created because it's a great way to be able to start to choose your cases as well as having your team understand that concept. The second one that Invisalign is now adopting um, pretty heavily now is axial inclination. As definition, the axial inclination is more or less the, the uh, long axis, aligned uh, line drawn through the long axis of the tooth. They should always converge at the belly button. We don't want them converging at the chin or the chest or the neck. It's gotta be the belly button. as a slight, subtle transition down. And as a result, this is one of my first veneer cases as you can see here this does not have axial inclination that goes anywhere. It's just diverging and definitely not going to the belly button. Another thing I want you to notice here is notice that I only did six teeth because I was taught in dental school, I drank the Kool-Aid like everyone else and told that the anterior teeth are only six through 11. I've changed that to where the aesthetic zone to me is definitely goes back to the second bicuspid. So for me, posterior teeth are really um, first and second molars, not the premolars. Now on the flip side, in Danielle's case, If you look at the axial inclination in her particular situation, it does converge down to the belly button. And that's more of the idea that we're looking for. So axial inclination should be a subtle transition down to that belly button. Obviously as we move from the uh, the centrals are least inclined because they're so close to the center already. And as we move out to the posterior um, or premolar area and into the molars, definitely canines, then we start to have a little bit more of a drop or an angle. So that excellent inclination is a critical part of being able to help these cases. Now, I I published an article in the JCD a few years ago on two, four, eight, or more, but never to do six veneers. And I show this from restorative and also Invisalign because I see a lot of Invisalign cases to where the buccal corridor, which is the transition, and my my definition of the buccal corridor is the distal of the canines, to the second molar. That area becomes very deficient, um, both with the restorative primarily, but then also with Invisalign. I see a lot of these uh, checks where it was just missed. So in this particular case, I think you can see that on Danielle's, on her right side or left of the screen, 4 and 5 is a little deficient. I think I could have improved upon that uh, quite a bit more. Her left side, I think, is fuller. But I use this as to show you a little bit of a contrast. But what I did is, using Photoshop, I actually superimposed six veneers that I did postoperatively over her pre-op, and notice how the loss of the buccal corridor occurs. Again, I see this in restorative all the time but I also see it in Invisalign too where it's just a deficient area because of improper use of expansion. That's why I do feel that expansion is one of the best tools to be able to get um, the the aesthetics to, to ideal. Now what I did secondarily here is I superimposed using Photoshop four of the post op veneers over the pre op. Now notice that this looks even better than the six in my opinion. So that's why two, four, eight or more but six is absolutely the worst number you can do and for my own use in the past, a patient having six veneers, which I did, probably my first 15, 20 cases were like this until I started realizing that something was missing. It was because I was obliterating the buccal corridor, and I noticed in my first initial uh, Invisalign cases the same thing. So bridging the communication gap with the technicians, uh, another one of my power pearls is the fact that we can use axial inclination and buccal corridor and understand that concept from both restorative and just a liner only from an aesthetic standpoint. So this is a patient, preoperatively, actually had three years of um, uh, traditional braces prior. But notice if you look at the case, we've got a midline uh, cant, we've got a slight anterior cant, we've got, in my opinion, uh, a deficiency in the buccal corridor area, Our axial inclination, especially 7 and 10, is way off. Now I love a line more than anything. This has been a wonderful company, and they're such a brilliant group as far as what they're able to provide, but if I could fault them about anything, it would be that the fact that the axial inclination of 7 and 10 are an area that we just have to improve upon a little bit, and uh, so basically, my suggestion is to be preemptive. Now, they are working diligently to start to get that axial inclination more into play um, without the doctors even having to ask for it, and it's happening. They're so responsive, and they're so good about that. It's just an area that we've kind of looked at that's uh, somewhat deficient. So if you go back and look at any of your prior uh, clin-, uh, clin checks, you may notice that the one that you approved had the 7 and 10, the axial inclination was not going to the belly button. It was, it was diverging versus converging. After, after uh, today's lecture, you'll go back and probably notice this. So what I do is... In addition to asking for the Procline, or rather the uh, expansion primarily, Procline as needed, and no IPRs in the special instructions, on every special instruction, I put in there to ask for axial inclination of the uh, maxillary anterior teeth to converge to the mid-body, belly button. And that way it gives them an idea of knowing that they wanna be able to pull those teeth from an axial standpoint to the belly button. And I wanna illustrate this point. So this is where she is preoperatively. And then postoperatively, this is the, more or less, the quincheck uh, that I had gotten. Now when you look at this, many of you may go, okay, yeah, I like it, I would, I would approve it, but let's look at this a little further. If we look at the upper left, that's pre-op, right is post-op, or at least theoretical post-op on the quincheck. Hopefully most of you are, based on what I've just talked about, seeing where we have some improvement. For example, the midline is not no longer canted, the anterior is no longer canted, but look at seven and 10. The actual inclination is still off. Also, in my opinion, the buccal corridor is deficient, making the canines a little bit more prolific. And even number 11, the axial inclination is not to the belly button. I think it was better in the pre-op on tooth number 11 than it is in the post. So that's what I want you to look at a little bit further. So that instruction that I had mentioned about asking for the axial inclination to follow to the mid-body belly button area gives them a transition. So what I did is we're going to take now that post-op. That's, this is the post-op picture that would have been potentially approved, and I'm going to take it apart a little further. And so what I did here is I asked for better axial inclination and better use and positioning of the buccal cord or using expansion, and this is what I came up with. So if we more or less compare these two, the upper left being what normally 99% of all doctors would have approved versus the lower right side, I'm hoping that most of you will see that there's an improvement based on the axial inclination is more too ideal on all teeth, the better and better use of buccal corridor. This will give you a fuller smile. She is still deficient and collapsed on that upper left side. And again, this is something we would normally approve. Now technicians, good technicians, when you ask for excellent inclination, for example, on seven and 10, it's a three-dimensional movement. So they will bring it, obviously, into the, uh, more towards the belly button, the ankle. But it also opens up the gingival, rather the incisal embrasure a bit, so they have to rotate it back in lingually usually to be able to achieve this. But if you can see, hopefully, the difference between the upper left and lower right, it just gives a better overall aesthetic result. And these do make a big difference. It's a difference, in my opinion, between an A minus smile and an A plus smile based on the teeth dimensions without doing restorative. You did the best that you could possibly do on that lower right. The only addition I would do is I would tend to do some gingival contouring on seven and 10 to create a little bit better, rounder position. And then I would probably work on the premolars just a bit as far as um, doing gingival contouring with a laser. But other than that, I don't know how much more you have to do to be able to get an ideal scenario. So when we go basically where we started pre-op to post-op, a fuller, better scenario overall. And just as a result, you're going to have a happier patient. Another case, just uh, briefly, to look in the same situation, is we want to be able to make sure, based on those instructions I've given, to get a nice, nice, position and good use of buccal corridor. This is a massive class to, uh div to, and the patient was much happier. A lot of issues, still overbite and whatnot, but we were able to improve it tremendously other than the gingival contouring that we haven't done yet. But again, looking at that axial inclination and then also proper use of the buccal corridor makes a tremendous different end result. And then just use of the gingival uh, architecture at the, uh, at the end result, too, also makes a big, big difference. Now, to more or less um, look at finishing how I contour cases, both uh, with contouring, I, I do this on 95% of my Invisalign cases, and restorative, I work it in. So uh, shape of the teeth is really important. I, I published a, a couple books a couple a few years ago, one in 2003 called The Platinum Paradigm. The second one was Platinum Paradigm Two, that more or less help patients and ceramists and doctors, as well as team members, understand a lot of the parameters that I've talked about today. So it explains about what buccal corridor is and um, axial inclination, line angles, and, and the need to basically maximize aesthetics to ensure good function. And it has also examples of teeth in within uh, from a restorative standpoint and then also a contouring standpoint for a uh, liner only. So I'll usually send one of my, my uh, patients home with a couple of copies of, of shapes that they like. and. Uh, you are able to then look at how you would contour these cases and for example, though male and female teeth are not different, um, there isn't a masculine tooth versus a feminine tooth, we have socially created a difference between what's uh, more feminine and and what's more masculine and of course with, with women, typically the distals are a little bit more rounded Slightly open uh, incisal embrasures, and then I like sharper canines for women. That tends to just give a beautiful, sexy look. You mentioned sexy to a woman with regard to her teeth, and they're always like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I always think that's the funniest thing. But it's a more feminine look, for example. Um, uh, in in Conversely to that, though, we will look at, for example, males. And with males, we're going to typically see a little bit more, not always, but a more straight off or squared out look, which tends to have a little bit more of a masculine look. Remember, again, there's not a difference between male and female teeth, but we have socially created a difference between them. So rarely we're gonna see a woman pick this smile, but men typically will uh, a little bit more. So it gives you an idea of where you wanna angle and and, and, uh, position. Going back to what I had said, I still provisionalize every time. This is basically how I even got into speaking uh, years and years ago by developing a technique that created incisal characteristics just like what you see here um, that will more or less create incisal characteristics uh, and then an end result that is more towards ideal. So here we have, uh, after three days, you always take an impression and take photos to, to be able to send back to your laboratory, and you never send back the wax up again. Keep it at home take the pre-op out, use it as an example of what to show patients in the future. So staging of the case, um, for example, in this patient we intruded using Invisalign. I think it took about seven or eight months. So after intrusion, I can only go so far. Um, What I basically did is uh, at that point that we then provisionalized, as you see here, that's coming up. And then the final uh, element is where we more or less go to final restorations, which should ideally emulate what you've already done and that the idea is to be able to create an incisal position and a conservative restoration based on the use of Invisalign in the, in the sense of what we've kind of talked about today. Now, just as, uh, as I finish here, the one thing that I have to say is in this day and age, you have to cover your rear end, and Invisalign has a wonderful consent form, which is very informative, but I have a four-page um, consent form that doesn't deal with just a line. It deals with full mouth rehabilitation, root canals, uh, Extractions, Now I will tell you, I, I don't do a lot of extractions. I mean, I, unless I can pull it out with my fingers, I don't do oral surgery. Um, and then endo, I do very little. It's really when I'm pressed by a patient, but uh, it's hard to read these. But they all have concessions in there that, that say basically that you'll wear your liners uh, If you don't, your warranty could be uh, null and void with restorative. If you don't come in for regular routine, uh, six-month or four-month cleanings, whatever you're set, that it could also warrant or you could lose the warranty uh, based on the fact that you're not keeping them up. It it says in here that you um, cannot sue us, you can't um, take us to the dental board, and you could potentially die. Not to sound extreme, but it's kind of funny with this. I wrote this, and then I had um, an attorney more or less legalize it. And it's just saved my rear end a couple of times with patients that were trying to press. I had one patient that was very upset about Invisalign because her teeth weren't moving, but she was only wearing them nine hours a day, and that's all she said she could ever wear them. And she had never disclosed this to us before, so she was upset with me. And I said, here it says that you signed Kim, that you would wear these things uh, 23 hours a day. So if you have an interest, just email me uh, at tsmallwood at uh, qwest.net, and I'd be happy to send you a copy of these. They're in Microsoft Word so that you can edit them. And, um, and if you have an interest in the Platinum Paradigm books, uh, you can purchase those if you just email me or go to uh, to my website, which I'll show at the end. If I have an interest in just uh, visually showing how you can change these type of smiles, it uh, will sometimes help you. In closing, I just want to thank all of you for listening. It's a little bit different. I do a lot of speaking all over the world on full mouth rehabilitation with uh Uh, and also with a line and everything in between and it's a little different uh, speaking one way without questions uh, necessarily coming at you or interaction of the group but I appreciate everybody being hopefully attentive hopefully nobody fell asleep on the other end and I do appreciate the fact that you're spending the time and effort to get to know uh, me a little bit today and then listen to the type of things that I've taught you and hopefully you can uh, go home and take some of these with you, some of these uh, pearls and ideas that make your life and your practice a little bit better. Please don't hesitate to uh, email me at tsmallwood at at any time for anything that you might have any questions. I'm always happy to help. Uh, dentistry has been great to me and I'm always happy to give back and so I urge you to uh, take full advantage of that if you have an interest and then if you'd like uh, more information on uh, on a lot of what I've talked about today and other things, uh, mastertheaestheticextreme.com. You can certainly um, uh, log on to that, too.
0: Dr. Smallwood, thank you very much. It was a great presentation. Thank you. I appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing you on another expert webinar. Thank you you very much.